Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday morning worship service of the Heartland Church of the Nazarene. We're a community of faith learning to love God and our neighbors as ourselves. Welcome home. Today's sermon text is from Acts 4, 1 through 22. The passage will be on the screen for you, or if you like, please turn to Acts in your Bible. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, What will we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. Well, um, have, you ever, have you ever looked at somebody after they've done something and said this to them? What in the world am I going to do with you? Everybody said that word, that line before? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Those of you who are kids or have parents, those of you who have children have said this line very often. Remember I told that that story about Josh and the fly swatter a couple of weeks ago, a couple months ago? Prime example, what in the world are you doing? What am I gonna do with you, crazy kid that licks the fly swatter? Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's not just little, little kids, but it's, it's older ones, it, especially by the time they get to middle school. Um, sometimes if you ask a middle schooler why they did something, and they say, I don't know, they're not lying to you. Like, their brains are going through such a transformation uh, 
that the, the decision-making portions of their brain aren't, they're, they're just not fully functioned yet. And so sometimes they do things and they just, they don't even know. They don't know why they did something. Um, and so that happens. I think it happens. I actually, I don't know that I've ever outgrown that particular stage of uh, adolescent development. Um, but anyway, so you don't have to just have kids to, to have said this kind of thing. In fact, I think uh, that's one way, right? We, we raise our kids and like, man, what am I going to do with you? I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing it. I think we say these kinds of things because of the, the nature of our world as being just so diverse and different. Uh, that, that you and I come from different places. And uh, it's just, I don't understand some people who live in different cultures. I, I have no idea why you're acting the way you're acting. Um, even though to them it may make complete sense. Uh, I had a professor that was always really fond of saying, uh, saying people, make, uh, people act in ways that make sense to them. Uh, and so sometimes you gotta put yourself into those kind of positions to figure out, you know, what am I going to do with you? I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to understand where you're coming from and what makes you do the behaviors that you do. Well, I think the second way is where the religious leaders in Israel are at this particular moment in this narrative. They are looking at Peter and John thinking, what in the world are we going to do with you? Uh, they don't say that exactly, but I think that's one, what's running through their brain as they uh, end up going through this story. And we'll get there in a second. Uh, but this week's story is a continuation of last week's story. If you'll remember, Peter and John are going to the temple at the time of prayer. And they go and they pass a crippled man. He's been crippled since birth. And uh, he's begging for money. And Peter and John's like, oh, we don't have money. But what we have, we can give you get up and, and walk. And the guy, uh, he'd been crippled since birth. And uh, he gets up and, and walks, just jumping up and down and praising God and clinging on to Peter and John. And this draws a, a great crowd. Remember last week I tried to get you to experience that from both perspectives, uh, to what it must have been like to be that, that crippled man or what it must have been like to, to witness that, uh, that event in that day. Well, we left off and uh, we left off with that story when the religious leaders were about to make their way onto the scene. And so Peter is talking and he's doing his thing and all of a sudden the religious leaders show up and we, we kick off this particular part, chapter four. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain guards of the temple and the Sadducees came to them much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that Jesus is the resurrection of the dead. Well, uh, couple of things are important here. One, they're annoyed. It's not necessarily that Peter and John are, attempt, are like intentionally causing a ruckus uh, or a disturbance. Uh, it, uh, things like this may have, been, may have been normal for people to come into the temple and kind of give a word. At least that's uh, some of the prophetic witnesses that we have in the Old Testament did similar kinds of things. So it's not that completely out of the norm. It's the, well, it's the Sadducees particularly don't like what it is that Peter and John are saying. They're, they're claiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and not only that, but that like we too are going to be raised from the dead one day, and that Jesus is kind of the first fruits of that resurrection. That, that's reading into to what Peter and John are saying, uh, but that's there behind it. The Sadducees, for their part, they, uh, well, they don't believe in the resurrection. Pharisees did. Pharisees, both these kind of lay groups, they're not priests, but they're 
kind of lay religious factions, sects within uh, Israel's faith. And so Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So you can imagine that not only they are a little annoyed that these guys are making such a commotion, but they're a little annoyed that they're preaching something for, about which they completely and totally disagree. And so uh, they gather them together. The, the, the leaders, the religious leaders come down and they, uh, they're like, man, I don't know what to do. And what do you do with a bunch of people at the temple who you don't know what to do with? You throw them in jail. Or at least that's what the religious leaders of, uh, of the day do. They take Peter and John and they say, you can sit in jail, think about what it is that you've just done overnight. And, uh, and so they go and they sit in the jail, and, and Peter and John aren't really, they're not really concerned, it doesn't say, uh, that they're really concerned about what it is that's going to happen to them. In fact, we've already looked at the story after this, and one of the things that Peter and John will say is that they were, they praised God because they were worthy of being uh, arrested for the name of Jesus Christ. Well, uh, the religious leaders, I'm sure some of them gathered uh, that evening to try to figure out what they were going to do. Uh, but they couldn't figure it out. So the next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled together in Jerusalem and uh, with all of those people. And I'm not going to read their names because I will not pronounce them correctly today. Uh, but the high priest and, and some others, the priestly family, some of these guys, well, the high priesthood was hereditary at this particular point. So... Um, you could stop being the high priest and one of your kids would take it up. Uh, one, of the, one of the things um, that I want to point out here is this particular word. These two words right here. Oh, oh, can I not do this? Oh, here we go. I'm going to try something spiffy. Ooh. Did it do it? It's right on my iPad. <laughs> All right, well, uh, there we go. It's gone. At least, well, I was going to try to do something fun, but maybe not. All right. Uh, always try out technology before you implement it in a public set setting, right? That's, that, is, that is the truth. Uh, these two words, their rulers, uh, kind of an important, and I think it sets up the tension that's going to happen in the rest of this passage and in a large part with Acts and I think attention that has been there throughout all of the Gospels. Uh, now, a couple of things are important here. Um, Peter and John are Jewish. They are thoroughly Jewish. They are at the temple to pray. They could not be more Jewish than they actually are. But by, by making this distinction, their rulers, the Jewish people's rulers, the author of, of Acts is saying, like, there's a conflict between, here between, like, Jesus and his followers and the religious leaders in Israel about who the true authority really is. Uh, who has absolute authority in this place here and now, in this day, in this age? Uh, religious leaders thinking God, Yahweh, the only God. Um, and Peter and John and his disciples are thinking yeah, that's true, but God is Jesus, and Jesus is the fullest revelation of who God is, and so Jesus is the ultimate authority for us in our lives. Well, a couple of things I think are really important as we look at that too. One, Jesus, for his part, and, and like we said, John and Peter as well, he is fully Jewish. Jewish. He lived and breathed his religion and his culture. He did all of the things. He, he followed most of the purity laws most of the time. 
uh, he celebrated Passover in Jerusalem. Uh, we know that from childhood on, he did that, one of the things they were supposed to do, and even as an adult, right? He situates his story within the story of God's love and care and salvation for Israel, especially when he, when he narrates his, his death uh, and makes us understand that his death is similar to the, the, the Passover meal. Uh, that, that in that meal, we are not just remem- remembering what it is that God did for Israel, but we are now, after Jesus, remembering what God does to bring us out of the exodus from sin and death and slavery to it. So Jesus is completely Jewish. Second, he does everything that he can to describe what he's doing within the framework of Israel's religion. Now, I say these two things particularly because people throughout history have taken passages like this and they have used them to speak poorly of the Jewish people. Uh, Anti-Semitism, right? So Holocaust, World War II, all of those things. Uh, unfortunately, there's a dark history in the church where the, the, the Christian church, they blamed the Jews for uh, the death of Jesus explicitly and said, these are terrible people because they killed Jesus, even though, um, I mean, it's kind of true, but it, not in the same way. Uh, so that's to say that like, there is, it's important to understand that, that Jesus isn't trying to do something completely new. He's not trying to, to work outside of the way that God has already worked in uh, in the nation of Israel, and we'll see this in, in just a second too. Uh, we'll flesh that out in just a second. I think the last thing in terms of their rulers, this, this comment, is that Jesus, and Peter and John are saying that it is not too late for the religious leaders. I, there, there's this sense that, yeah, they, they've done these bad things and they're rejecting who it is that Jesus was and is, but it is not too late for them. If it was, Peter and John would have not taken the trouble to come to the temple. They would not have preached what they preached about Jesus and the resurrection within the temple that day. They wouldn't have done that if they didn't think that it wasn't too late for all of those people who have been followers of Jesus Christ or followers of God in Jewish faith. It's not too late even for the religious leaders. Well, um, when they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they encountered, uh, I might be ahead of myself. Yeah, no, I'm not. They inquired, by what power and by what name do you do this? I think this is a legitimate question, right? If we're having this tension between who has the authority, the Jewish religious leaders, and, or is it in Jesus Christ? And so they want to know, they want to know by whose authority that Jesus, or that Peter and John have healed this crippled man. And, and their response is really great. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who is sick and, and, and are asked how this man has been healed, we'll stop right there for a second. I was going to circle again, but not going to do that. I, imagine this. Peter and John they're flabbergasted by the fact that they would have been arrested and given so much trouble for doing something good for somebody else. It's not like Peter and John flipped over a bunch of tables or drove out some you know, people selling sacrifices like, John, like Jesus did. No, they're, they're, they did something good. Uh, the word they use here for good deed, actually, um, Pretended I circled it. 
the word for good deed kind of has a relationship between like a, a pat, uh, patron and, and, I don't know, patrony? That's not right. So in the ancient world, if you wanted to build something, a lot of times communities would have a patron, a wealthy person within the, con- or within the community who would pay for something to be made. Or like if you were an artist and a patron would commission you to create a piece of art. Uh, or even to, you might be a patron of a family to help them through a particular time, uh, a rough time. And so Peter and John are saying that this particular time, that what they are doing is no different than what all of the people around them have done in the larger culture, a good deed. Uh, they are, if you will, patrons, and they are giving their resources to this man who had been crippled for so long. And they just can't understand why, why in the world, why in the world would you be upset that we have done this very good and normal thing? Ah, second thing um, is the fact that uh, not only is this kind of a normal thing, but this healing is a, well, it's a small preview It is a small preview of what Israel had been looking forward to since the beginning. Uh, If you remember, Peter says in the last passage uh, in chapter 3, something about like that Jesus is bringing these times of refreshment and restoration to Israel. Uh, And and this healing is a little preview of that. In fact, the, the standard greeting for Jewish people is shalom. Right? Have you heard that word? Shalom. And it just means peace. But it, it's richer than just like the absence of conflict. It has everything to do with being whole and restored and put together and just right in body and mind and soul. And so when you would greet someone with this word shalom, you were, you were passing on a blessing. You were hoping and praying that God would bless that person with wholeness. That they would be the person that God has created them to be. That they would they would not succumb to sickness or to death or sadness or one of these things. And so Peter and John, they've got this in the back of their head and think, look, this is part of what God's shalom is. We haven't done anything than what we all hoped would be done. We're giving wholeness and restoration. Peter and John, I believe, see what they have done as a part of God's, well, his end time restoration of all things, when all things become new again. Well, they finally get around to uh, answering uh, the Pharisees or the religious leaders' questions. They say, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that this man standing before you is in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There you go. They wanted to know by what power and what authority they have answered him. Because of Jesus Christ, this man here now works. Well, they, they, uh, they didn't know what to do with Peter and John again. They said, they looked at him and they said, we have no idea what you're talking about. We don't understand it. Even though they're the ones who had been so profoundly rich, steeped in the richnesses of, of Israel's uh, sacred text, the Bible, the Old Testament that they should have understood and seen what Peter and John and what Jesus had ultimately done as part of what God is hoping to do for all of creation. 
What in the world are we going to do with you? That's what the religious leaders are saying. And so because, because Peter had made this really good argument, they don't know what to do, and so they kick him out again, and they confer together, and the religious leaders say, what will we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Well, there you go. That should solve the problem, right? Uh, you've punished your kids before, and you'd be like, now don't do that again. And there's like no tangible repercussions for not doing that thing again. What, what does your child do? He goes and does those things again. I say he, you say she. Eventually you'll say he very soon. That's very good. Uh, yeah, so it, it really doesn't have a whole lot of, uh, of weight, but yet Peter, I, I love their response, actually. Peter's response, he says. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John were like, yeah, I don't think so. We can't help but, but speak about the things that we have seen and heard. We, we can't help but proclaim well, what this man represents, this 40-year-old man who could never walk it but now does. We cannot help but proclaim the fact that God's goodness and grace and his salvation has come and is yet coming and that there will be a time when all things are restored and made right again. Well, the, uh, the religious leaders, they, they've got no answer to that. And so they let Peter and John go. I wonder, I wonder if we, maybe to put ourselves back into the story, like, where would we be standing in this kind of tension? Uh, this, this question of whose authority we are going to, to follow. Would, would we be standing with the religious leaders and saying, we have no idea what to do with you. We don't recognize Jesus as the true authority. Or would we stand with Peter and John and say, Ah, we cannot help but proclaim what it is that we have seen and heard, the goodness and grace of God's salvation and restoration. I think, see, for Peter and John, well, the Sadducees and the religious leaders, like we've said that, they, they don't understand. I think if we truly, if we're truly living in such a way that we confess along with Peter and John, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. If we are truly putting ourselves on team Jesus, confessing that, that the supreme ruler and authority in the world is not man or anyone who's in authority, but it is Jesus Christ who was crucified but who is resurrected, never to die again. I wonder if we truly lived that out, if we would end up having the same kind of confrontations that Peter and John have. Ones where the world looks at us and says, we have no idea what to do with you. Because we don't understand it. Paul will talk about it this way in 1 Corinthians. 
uh, chapter 1. He'll say, the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to the world. It is foolishness to those who are, to who are perishing. The wisdom of the cross seems like it doesn't make any sense. The wisdom of confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and living by the way that Jesus Christ lived doesn't make sense to the world around us. So what does the wisdom of the cross look like? What is it that that it looks like for us to live like we are actually confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord? I think there's a couple of things. It's to live in true and selfless love. We, we sing the song, Reckless Love, and when, when that song first came out, uh, some of my pastor friends who I know, well, they got themselves all in a tizzy because, I don't know, because it seems unresponsible for God to love recklessly. They have a hard time uh, making that kind of assertion about the love of God. When you really look at it, though, like, Dying for somebody seems to be a little reckless. Loving your enemy seems a little reckless. Not retaliating when you are hurt or offended seems a little reckless in the world. In fact, when we do those things, people just might say, I don't know what to do with you. I think it is to love selflessly, recklessly. The second thing I think it is, I think it is sacrificial. The wisdom of the cross is sacrificial. It gives itself for the sake of others, but not just, not just for the sake of glory for others. You know, I mean, I, we have all those kind of sacrificial kind of things in the movie, and they usually revolve around... Um, Times of conflict, you know, soldiers giving themselves up for the sake of their comrade. And that's, those are good things. But I think to love sacrificially, the true wisdom of the cross is to, well, to put the, the health and the well-being and the salvation of those around us as more important than our own well-being. There's a lot of nuance I could say there. I don't want you to have a Messiah complex and completely burn yourself out doing good things for others. Uh, so, but that's not an excuse to, to live selflessly, sacrificially. I think sometimes the church has a hard time with this. Because, and, and I don't think it's so much our church, but I, I see this a lot in other places and in some of the things where I grew up. I think we don't live sacrificially when we, like, when we circle up the wagons, you know? And we are more concerned with what the outside world and how they might pollute us rather than being concerned with how we might love those who we think are a threat in the same way that Christ has loved us. Does that make sense? A friend of mine always would say, holiness is more contagious than sin. And I don't think that we really truly believe that often because we're too, too quick. Again, not us necessarily. We're too quick to say, eh, they might pollute me. And I don't give and love in the way that Christ has loved us because if you really think about it, we're pretty rotten. 
and Jesus loves us still. I think that the wisdom of the cross also is, well, it's forgiveness. It's refusing to let the things that other people have done to us fester inside of us and to ruin us and, and to push us towards retaliation in some kind of way. That's what the cross is about, right? Jesus hanging on the cross, bleeding from his side, crown of thorns, holes in his arms and his feet, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The wisdom of the cross, it makes the world sit up and say, we have no idea what to do with you because we don't understand it. My hope and my prayer for us is that in, in these kind of situations, and we have them all the time, where the world says, by what a power and what authority do you do these things? We don't understand what you're doing, that we might say it is, well, it is by the name of Jesus Christ, by the working of his Holy Spirit in us and through us, by this sacrificial, selfless love, this recklessness that God has given to us so freely that we, well, that we too live with a, a reckless love. Uh, that we too live self-sacrificially, that we give of ourselves in, in the ways that we can for the sake of those around us. That we become more concerned about how we love than maybe what we're against. I think it's we, they look at us as we forgive and say, no, you should hold on to that. You should get back at them. My hope and my prayer is that we would live in that kind of way. That we would stand with Peter and John in the midst of whatever might happen and we say, whether it is right in God's sight for us to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot keep from speaking what we have seen and heard. We cannot keep from doing what we have seen and heard. That as Christ has loved us, so also might we love the world. Well, that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for me. And I can't do it without you, by the way. Uh, one of the things that it's good to think about um, in organizations are like mission statements and things like that. And we've kind of toyed with one. This is what I think our mission should be and our vision and our values and all those kinds of things. I think that we are a people who are learning how to love God with all that we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is both like our mission and it is who we are. That we are these people who are learning to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord so that we might love like Jesus has loved us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we confess to you that we, um, well more often than not, that we stand in the place of the religious leaders and the Sadducees. Uh, that we look at you 
on the cross and we think, we have no idea what to do with you. Because we just, it's hard for us to understand, well, the depth of your love and the, the length of your selflessness and the, the wonderfulness of your forgiveness. Lord, help us as the world around us screams for us to place our well, our faith and trust in it, that the world around us seeks to have us confess our allegiance to them, that we might stand with Peter and John and say, no, Christ is king. There is no king but Christ the king. Lord, we realize that that's difficult. And so we gather each Sunday and a lot of Wednesday nights and we talk and we sing and we read scripture together in hopes that you would help us and form us into the kind of people who live and maybe even die with the same kind of selfless love, with the same kind of selfless abandonment that seeks to care for, for others even more than we care for ourselves that we might be the kind of people who forgive in the same ways that you forgive, which is always and forever. Lord, help us as we look to you, to your crucified yet resurrected body and say, we know what to do. We know who we are. And in those moments, help us to have the strength to go out into our world and to actually carry you with us so that we might speak what we have seen and heard and that we might do what we have seen and heard as well. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday morning worship service. For more information about the Heartland Church of the Nazarene, please visit heartlandnaz.org.